Welcome to LST's I'm the Law, a show about law jobs. In this episode, Debbie Merritt, a law professor at The Ohio State University, interviews Candace Holm, a 2001 graduate of Georgetown University Law Center and federal public defender in Newark, New Jersey. Let's start by talking about the overall role of public defense. What are public defenders and why do we even have them? Public defenders are lawyers for those who are accused of crimes. We have them because I guess it goes back to Gideon v. Wainwright, I would say, where the Supreme Court ruled that every person who is charged with a serious crime deserves and has the right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment. So we are part of the system of justice. So we're talking about a federal constitutional right to counsel. And if somebody can't afford their own counsel, then the government has to provide it for them. So who's paying for this? The Federal Public Defender's Office is under the judiciary. So we do get funded by Congress. And we are separate and apart from the U.S. Attorney's Office, the prosecutors in federal cases. Uh, They're under the executive branch. Tell me now, Candace, about the different types of work in your office. Do attorneys specialize in different things? In my office, the attorneys do not specialize in different things. Uh, We acquire cases on our duty days in which we cover the court. So anytime a new client or defendant is brought into court on a charge, uh, we are there to be appointed by the court to meet with our clients for the first time and to hopefully deal with bail issues or or try to get our clients out on pretrial release rather than having them go into detention. So what are the range of charges that you might be faced with on a typical day? It varies. Um, We've had cases usually like felon in possession of a weapon, illegal reentry. We have drug distribution cases. I've had wire fraud, child pornography, bank fraud. Uh, So it, it runs the gamut, really. But one thing for people to realize is that in the federal system, we don't have as many murders and rapes and assaults as we do on the state level. That's true. The state is where you will find uh, cases like murder and assault because each state has its own laws about those types of crimes. Federally, you will not see that unless something happened on a federal property or to a federal officer. You might see a case like that in court. So the federal cases are ones that have some connection with interstate commerce. We see these drug dealing cases. We see wire fraud, as you said, child pornography, things that tend to cross state lines. So the first time you meet your clients, uh, they're in the courthouse and they're being considered for bail. Is that correct? That's the first step that you take with them? Well, normally I will inform the client of what the charges are. Uh, During the court proceeding, however, uh, the court will certainly address whether that person should be released on pretrial release. And how do you make your argument about bail? Do you have time to talk with your client about points to make, or do you make fairly generic arguments? We have a very limited time to speak to our clients. We try to obtain the most salient information about the person's resources, family, friends, family who are willing to come forward on his or her behalf as a co-signer of a bond, um, meaning they sign a bond, but no money is put up up front. Also, whether anyone has property that could be posted and whether anyone could be a third party custodian, uh, meaning that person would allow my client to live with him or, or her for the pendency of the case. 
that's a big decision for defendants, right? If you don't get out on bail, you end up staying in jail while you're presumed innocent. It definitely is. The judge will consider a couple of factors in making that decision. One is whether my client is a danger to the community. And secondly, whether my client is a flight risk. So the bail decision is made, and then your client is either released or perhaps has to go back to a cell. About how many clients do you pick up on any duty day? It really varies. I think the most I've had is about, I would say, around eight. And I had as, as few as none in one day. And I think it really depends on the U.S. Attorney's Office and what they're focusing on at the moment. I think that there's an ebb and flow to the quantity of cases I see, and it will usually depend on the type of cases that they're focusing on. For example, if some cases require complicated investigations, it may take longer uh, for them to bring those cases to court. But if they make drug arrests or gun arrests, those will pop into court any day. Tell us a little bit about how you establish a relationship with your clients. These are people facing a really bad time, federal charges. They may still be in, in jail awaiting trial. Don't trust the system very much, I'm guessing. How do you establish rapport with your clients? It is a very difficult aspect of the job. Fortunately, in my experience, I have been able to establish a rapport with my clients. Part of it is following through, whether it's calling family members or inquiring with the prosecutor about certain issues and getting back to my clients in a timely manner. That really helps in building up some trust and respect between myself and the client. I can think of some examples where the clients are in the jail and they have no idea what's going on with their cases. So I certainly think that trying to inform them of what's going on and making sure they understand the process is really important in building up that relationship. As I told you, I've done some criminal defense work and there have definitely been times when my client has not been honest with me. What do you do when a client doesn't want to be forthcoming when you know that they're not telling you the whole story? It's a tough situation to be in. And I think one avenue I've explored is bringing in another attorney or bringing in my investigator to really assist me in trying to lay out my client's options, the different avenues he or she could take, or emphasizing with my client the importance of being honest with me because I'm really the one who's trying to help him. And in most cases, I'm the only one who can help him. Candace, tell us a little bit about plea bargaining. In that process, we have discussions with the prosecutor about different ways that our clients can plead out to a certain charge. We try to present to the prosecutors mitigating circumstances for our clients. Um, they will consider it, but often they will inform us that those issues are best left to the judge to decide at sentencing, ultimately. So what we end up getting normally is a plea agreement that really allows both parties to argue what they want. And that argument would be to the judge? Yes. So the plea agreement says each party will present their arguments to the judge within these parameters. So it is unlike the state, I would say, because in the state system, often the parties can come to some agreement regarding a particular number of months or years that would be the defendant's sentence. 
we do not have that in the federal system as much. I would say I've I've had that happen once in my career here where we have come to an agreement for a certain sentence to be imposed by the judge and all parties have to agree and the judge even has to agree. But that was a very, very special circumstance and I would say it's very rare. What about arguments over the admissibility of evidence? Does that come up during plea bargaining where you say to the prosecutor, you know, that evidence you've got, it really violated the Fourth Amendment, so let's come to a plea here. There are instances in which we have brought that to the prosecutor's attention. I would say that most of the time when that happens, we are not given a more beneficial plea, but instead we're compelled to file pretrial motions, like motions to suppress prior to trial or even prior to pleading out. So often it does not, unfortunately, compel the government to give us a better plea, but instead we we move for a motion to suppress. So that really goes back then to the formal trial process. You're making that formal motion to suppress and the prosecutor will argue why it was constitutional and then the judge will decide. Exactly, exactly. And it often involves some sort of evidentiary hearing where people give testimony. For example, police officers who were at the scene of the arrest or who conducted searches and the circumstances of those searches and arrests. So you'll be in court even when you're not going to trial. Yes, that certainly requires us to be in court uh, litigating those issues. And sometimes they lead to trial, um, but sometimes they also lead to my clients pleading out. Support for I'm the Law comes from ShouldIBeALawyer.com. Using an assessment tool based on data from more than 2,500 attorneys, ShouldIBeALawyer.com helps you determine if law school is a good fit and what areas of the law best match your strengths and weaknesses. To hear more episodes, subscribe to I'm the Law on iTunes or visit LSTRadio.com. We just talked about how most cases are settled by plea bargains, but some do go to trial. About how many times a year would you go to trial, do you think? It is not something that happens every year for me. I would say I've been to trial a handful of times. I would say half a dozen times, and I've been here, oh, three, but uh, as a legal research and writing attorney and 2006, 2007 as a trial attorney. What I've seen working on the state level That usually means that you're being quite successful as a defense attorney because there's no point in in going to trial. That often leads to a more severe sentence for the defendant, I found. That's true. That's true. And uh, there is, I think, a couple of reasons why most of our clients plead guilty. One is, of course, that the investigations that are conducted by the U.S. Attorney's Office are, are pretty solid by the time they bring the charges in court. And secondly, clients get incentives to plead guilty, there is a reduction in his or her calculation, and that affects what range of months he or she ultimately faces before the judge. It's also part of your work as lawyering, I would think, that it's hard for anybody to say yes to a prison sentence. So as a defense lawyer, you must have some tough conversations where you sit down with a client and say, look, this is what happens if we go to trial. This is what happens if you plead. Right. That is a very difficult conversation to have with a client. And sometimes our clients are, are very, um, they're very smart. They understand what's going on, or perhaps they've been through this before. 
Other times it will take other actions to help our clients understand what the case is about and what the repercussions are. And one example is that we will have something called show and tell meetings with the prosecutor's office in which the prosecutors themselves present to my client the evidence against him or her and the evidence that they anticipate they would present at trial so that our clients can see for himself or herself what a trial would look like. And and that's often something that's a useful tool in helping our clients realize what's at stake here. Oh, I can imagine it would be. I've seen even with misdemeanor shoplifting clients, they may claim that they're innocent, but then there's that surveillance videotape. It's hard to deny what's on the tape. Right. And at those show and tell meetings, prosecutors will show videotape, play audio tapes with my client's voice on it. So these are are very uh, compelling pieces of evidence. It must be pretty tough to negotiate with a prosecutor. The state holds so many cards in a criminal case. What can you possibly say to get the prosecutor to look more leniently on a client? It is difficult to approach prosecutors in terms of plea bargaining. I think that one of the biggest concerns that, of course, my clients are confronted with is the amount of time they're facing. Fortunately for me, I think in New Jersey, the District of New Jersey, they do not wield the most powerful charge in front of my clients unless they show signs that they will eventually go to trial. Um, So I think initially that the prosecutor's office in my district is pretty even-handed. I believe I've seen the statistic of approximately 95% end up pleading guilty. So a lot of what a defense lawyer like you is doing is working with the prosecutor to come up with a plea bargain that's acceptable to both the prosecutor and to the defendant. Sometimes I have clients who have come from the state system and they believe that we can come up with a particular number. Uh, And in, in the federal system, it is a lot different from the state because in the federal system, there is no number that we're coming to an agreement on. And that may be a common misperception about cases in federal court. You're leaving that number to the judge. So you may agree that you're going to plead to this one charge and the other charge will be dropped, but then the judge is going to decide what the sentence is. It seems like that can be more important than almost anything else. Yes. In a typical case, given that approximately 95% plead out versus going to trial. The biggest court proceeding that we're preparing for is the sentencing. We have to make sure that our arguments are set forth, that we've done the investigation and research that's needed, especially if it comes to any legal arguments that relate to the client's guideline range, meaning the range of months that he or she ultimately faces. And also, we have to make sure that we've done investigation into any relevant issues in that person's life, mental health issues, physical issues, the fact that perhaps maybe my client has never had any criminal history. They all are very important factors that we need to present to the judge so that the judge can sentence our clients fairly. So it's a combination of both legal and factual research that you're doing on these sentencing arguments. Absolutely. Which do you like doing more, the facts or the law? Uh, I think that I started out being more comfortable with the law because I was a legal research and writing specialist when I first joined the office, and I was a law clerk prior to that, so I was very focused on 
researching and understanding what the case law says. So I was very comfortable with that. Now, uh, I guess it's been about 12, 13 years later since I joined the office, I am more intrigued and I feel that it's it's very important, perhaps even more important, to present the facts of my client's case. You mentioned the writing and research specialist. What is that position? The attorney is writing appeal briefs to the Third Circuit or complicated motions and sentencing memos that are needed by my office. So when I first started here, that's what I began doing. And then you moved into a trial position, I take it. I uh, applied for the assistant federal public defender position when one of the other defenders in my office left to become a judge. And then I've been doing that ever since. Is that a common path to go from the writing position to the trial position? Or do some people stay as writing specialists? It will depend, I think, on on how the writing specialist feels about the AFPD position, because it does involve a lot of uh, work in the courtroom, um, meeting with clients in the jails, meeting with family members, talking with the prosecutor. So if someone in the research and writing specialist position is up for the task, he or she can certainly move up. And I would say it, it happens around maybe 50% in my office. Some mm-hmm. have chosen to stay in the legal research and writing position uh, because he or she is more comfortable in front of the computer. What about turnover in general in your office? You mentioned that somebody left to become a judge. That's a pretty prestigious step up. Is there much turnover otherwise? I would say there's very little turnover other than that. Many of the colleagues that I have here have been here for years, um, some for over 20 years, and I think a handful perhaps who have gone into private practice. But I think the reason that there is little turnover is that I think there is a lot of satisfaction that's gained from doing this type of job, and there is some sense of stability in this type of job, notwithstanding the furloughs of a couple years ago. Um, But I do think that people are very happy and satisfied with the work that they do here. Do you know about what the starting salary is for a federal public defender? Um, I think it would be somewhere uh, between 70000 and 100000 depending on one's previous experience. Right, because the federal public defender might not come right out of law school. In fact, right. I, I would guess probably doesn't come right out of law school. Right. I, I think most of my colleagues here started their careers at other state public defender offices, um, even prosecutors' offices before joining the office here. And just to clarify, the federal public defenders are paid under the general government lawyer pay scale. So public defenders get the same sort of salary levels as somebody in the U.S. Attorney's Office or other government agencies. So we are not going to penalize anybody for being a public defender. Candace, there's been a lot of public discussion about losses of funding for public defenders. Certainly on the state level, there have even been some issues on the federal level. There were that furloughs a few years ago that affected the public defender's office. Do you think we're spending enough as a country to provide resources for indigents in the criminal justice system? I certainly think that the criminal justice system is something that people have to devote more resources for. Um, I think that the public defenders especially are needed to make that system work. As far as I see it, yes, we do have a problem in this country 
certainly on the state level, at times within the federal level too. So I think people need to focus on the fact that in order for us to represent clients under the Constitution effectively, that we've got to devote more resources to the public defender system and to making sure that that system is working effectively for the clients who are usually the ones who need it most. And people need to understand that this is not money we spend in order to protect guilty people or to get them special favors. It's it's money we spend to have a fair system for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. It is to ensure that we have a fair process, that everyone who goes through the system, his or her rights are protected. Thank you to shouldibealawyer.com for sponsoring this episode. Thank you also to top-law-schools.com. I Am The Law is produced by Law School Transparency for LST Radio. If you want to hear more, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to lstradio.com.